Good Life Fitness was founded on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabek, Haudenosaunee, Lenapewak, and the Attawandaran peoples, on lands connected with the London Township and the Somber Treaties of 1796 and the Dish with One Spoon Covenant Wampum. This land, and the land on which all Good Life Fitness Clubs operate, continues to be home to diverse Indigenous peoples, First Nations, Inuit, and Métis, whom we recognize as contemporary stewards of the land and vital contributors of our society. Welcome to the Good Life Podcast, 30 Minutes With. I'm your host, Tim Cadney. September 30th is the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. My guest today is Good Life Fitness Associate Jarvis Gugu. Jarvis will talk to us about the challenges he has faced growing up as an Indigenous person here in Canada, help us understand Indigenous perspective, and what we can do beyond today to help create the change needed. We're also featuring music by Indigenous artist Renai Morisot. We'll learn more about her later in the show. Welcome to the show, Jarvis. How you doing? I'm pretty good. It's a lovely day here today. So, and where where currently are you? You're you're in Atlantic Canada, correct? Uh, yeah, um, Hellback slash uh, Dartmouth here. Excellent, excellent. Well, I am really excited to have you on the show, and um, you know, we always start with your good life story. So, why don't you tell us a bit about your journey with good life? Uh, yeah. So, it, I would say it started about 2008, and at the time, it was another gym that I joined, and I believe Good Life bought the gym out here in the Atlantic. 2009, 2010, and because I was an existing member of another one, all my contract just got ported over. And I remember one day, just uh, I got I got tired of weightlifting, got tired of running. It was the same thing I've done forever. And uh, I saw there were fitness classes, the new Les Mills one. So um, kind of stumbled into it, and uh, haven't stopped since. And then in 2011, I became an instructor. Amazing. So what what classes do you currently teach? Oh well. Uh, I'm certified in, uh, right now, um, certified in both body attack and body pump. Okay. I like that. You're blending the, the cardio with the resistance training perfectly there. High intensity cardio for sure. I love body attack. Oh, absolutely. Same here. And, uh, yeah, so I've been teaching, uh, 10 years in, uh, in 2018, uh, well, 2014, I was one of the Atlantic, uh, regional instructors of excellence and a top 500. And in 2018, I was uh, one of the uh, top six countrywide uh, instructors of excellence. That's incredible. Thank you. We're recording this episode for September 30th for Truth and Reconciliation Day. And, you know, the first thing I want to talk to you about is the challenges you faced growing up as an Indigenous person here in Canada. Yes. And for me, it's very, very broad, but uh, being my uh, podcast time. So uh, I'm very open to speak about that. uh, So we of course, heard of Indian residential schools. Mm-hmm. But I don't think what's talked about a lot are Indian day schools. I went to an Indian day school from 1985 to 1993. And from 1993 till 2000, uh, eventually I went to the school underneath the jurisdiction of our own community. And then subsequently, uh, a, a Mi'kmaq Board of Education. For me, I, I, w- I would say it's... It, in retrospect, you you don't know or realize something until you know hindsight's twenty twenty. And then when I when I think about my time of being at Indian res uh not residential school, sorry, at Indian day schools, you know one of the things I think about is you know lack lack of opportunity. I would say you know when I think of like provincial schools, with from my understanding, sports programs being one of them. My school to I've never we've never done anything. Farsi, like with other schools, 
because our Indian Day School, we were a federal jurisdiction. We didn't do anything with the province, to the best of my knowledge, growing up. Not sure if you knew, but uh, with the Indian Day School, there was a class action um, lawsuit that was launched in 2009. You know, a settlement came out of that in 2019, 2020. It took about 10 years to finalize. Uh, I, I myself was a part of that. Um, I, I applied for, you know, my my compensation from, you know, the abuse I went through through Indian Day School. And I, I would say after I, I finished grade school, um, I want to say directly per se, I don't want to say I, I face discrimination, but you always see it here and there, little bits with little snips of comments. You know, it's either online or, you know, in person, in classrooms, people thinking we're all rich or we all get lots of money or, you know, everything's free for us. And a lot, a lot of that, I would say my frustration is misconceptions, misunderstandings, not being aware of what rights we actually do have, the rights that we have. We, we fought for, you know, for decades, if not, you know, technically centuries. Over here in Mi'kmaq, whereas our treaties go back to the 1700s, even though the uh, Supreme Court of Canada have recognized our treaties, our people are still being attacked on the water. And they're not being protected by BFO. You know, you, you talked a little bit about, you know, the misunderstanding. So, you know, what do you feel is one thing about Indigenous culture or people that is most misunderstood right now? Uh, it's, a, it's a multitude of things. But for, for me, uh, I, I would like to think and say it's it, picturing and imagining and being mindful and respectful of I say the territory. Mm -hmm. So, for, for example, um, a lot of times people may ask me, how do you say Nova Scotia in Mi'kmaq? I tell them you can't. There's no word for it. Uh, because uh, our territory, which is called Mi'kmaqi, the land of the Mi'kmaq, it encompasses basically most of Atlantic Canada and the east to northern side of New Brunswick, it goes into even the Gaspé Peninsula of Quebec. That is our historical territory. And I think people need to be mindful of stop thinking of provincial boundaries of Nova Scotia, PEI, New Brunswick, Quebec, Newfoundland. Think about what was the Mi'kmaq territory. The way I always see this, and once you're outside the territory, what you need to understand is you're in someone else's territory. And to understand their history, their culture, their language, etc., you have to go there speak to them so um i i i don't speak at all to you know the blackfoot or the post lash or the malaysian or etc I, I i cannot i can speak about numerous issues and the history and culture within Mi'kma'ki of our territory but i always say once you're outside the territory i strongly encourage you reach out to you know the respective indigenous nation of where you are at, learn of them, learn what their territory is. It may cross provincial boundaries. It would, it would even cross, you know, international boundaries. There are some First Nations lands that cross the border and that go into the United States. And the way I see it is, this is historically how we live. And so I would say for me, that's probably a big thing I try to get people to understand is territory. And within that territory, those respective First Nations, at least with us as Mi'kmaq people, we define our citizenship, our nationhood. We know what our rights are. And in doing some of my work with Dwayne, uh, I was talking about land acknowledgements. 
And I said, it's not a problem for me to help you out with Omega Magi. But when you go out west, you may have different First Nations or many First Nations, and you'll need to speak to them on how a proper land acknowledgement would and should be done in the respective territory of where you are at. Let's talk a little bit about land acknowledgements because you know they are very common now, and, and we're hearing them a lot. And you know, I, I have heard before that there's there, there is a way to do it, and then and some of the ways that it has been done is is not really exactly what what should be said. So, what are your thoughts about land acknowledgements? Um, I, I, I again with that, I speak of it as a Megamaw person in my heart, mm-hmm. and so uh, I had this discussion with Law Fulton. It's very interesting is this, is if I attend a university graduation or a meeting or an outdoor event or, you know, whatever, so I would say well over half the time, I tend to almost hear a, a Mi'kmaq land acknowledgement. And for from my experience and with speaking with people, it's almost always basically we are in Mi'kmaq, the unceded land of the Mi'kmaq people. Uh, our treaties here are based upon peace and friendship from the 1700s. And we always tend to conclude with, we are all treaty people. With, the, with that land acknowledgement, uh, it's, it's acknowledging that here we never surrendered our land. I, I would say with us, with our land acknowledgement, it's acknowledging our treaties, them being peace, friendship, unceded, unsurrendered, but also acknowledging you know, when the British arrived and, you know, so as the Acadians and others, that we're all treaty people. We live here in peace and fr- in, in the spirit of peace and friendship. And of course, when you go, you go out west to other territories, uh, I say you, you need to talk to them about their land acknowledgement because that is their territory and how they choose to define themselves is their right as a sovereign nation. We have our own ways of doing it ourselves here. And the next thing I want to talk to you about, it, it's, it's important for us to acknowledge and respect each other's perspectives. So take us through Indigenous perspectives. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a many of them. And one thing that's, I kind of came up with this in 2004, 2005, where I was taking a wonderful class at St. Mary's University with uh, Dr. Val Marie Johnson. And we were talking about a lot of uh, historical prejudicial and discriminatory attitudes against uh, refugees and immigrants who are coming to Canada. And um, a bit of history I learned that I never knew that after during World War II, when uh, many uh, Jewish people were taken off from Nazi-occupied areas of Europe and they were fleeing to other countries of safety, I believe at the time, and I can't pull out the numbers right now, but Canada hardly took in any Jewish refugees. I think it was maybe just 5,000 throughout World War II. Many, many other countries took more. And one of the things I said about that at the time, and I wrote this in uh, my visit to Anne Frank Museum in Amsterdam in 2017, was I've always hated it as a Mi'kmaq person when I hear of non-Indigenous people in the land complain about immigrants, complain about refugees, complain about, you know, people coming here, taking our jobs, resources, etc. Because, you know, I, I think about Jewish people trying to flee danger and come to safety. To my knowledge, I am unaware of Jewish colonial history um, taking away Mi'kmaq lands and resources from Mi'kmaq people. 
I don't think that history exists. I always said when people were arriving here, we helped them. Uh, there's a lot of history with going back to Samuel de Champlain. And when the French arrived here in the early 1600s, basically like, you know, it's, it's harsh arriving here. And so other indigenous groups, I'm sure, but I know the Mi'kmaq people were helping the French and we became early um, allies and friends with them. And so then when I hear of other people complain about we got to stop using our resources to help uh, refugees and immigrants from coming here, I'm like, this whole history, what is Canada, what is the United States, what people call quote-unquote Western, it's all about original people being here who've helped new people come in here. And I'll start back when Europeans were coming here and Indigenous people and Indigenous nations were helping them. I always firmly believe that like, even back then and to this day, you know, it's, it's welcoming and helping people. And I always find when I have friends who are immigrants arriving here and they become citizens, I, I see them always, you know, talk about being proud of being Canadian. And I always like to tell them as a Mi'kmaq person in Mi'kmaq, like assuming somebody's from Halifax who became a Canadian citizen, I always like to tell them, um, you know, as an Indigenous person, as a Mi'kmaq person, I welcome you to this land. I wish you peace and happiness and, you know, a wonderful, great life. And I welcome you here. And it always seems like there's just this little bit of extra love that they appreciate here from a Mi'kmaq person when they say, welcome here. Like, a Canadian can say, welcome to Canada, but I think it meant a lot to them when they hear a Mi'kmaq person saying, you know, welcome to Canada or welcome to Mi'kmaq. Enjoy your stay and I wish you peace, love, happiness, you know, a good time, if anything. So, yeah, and so to me, that's that's always the way I've always seen it. The Americas are massive. Lots of land here for everyone. There's lots of resources. And so, you know, welcome everyone. And that's how I've always seen it as an indigenous person, slash as a Mi'kmaq person. There's a, there's a multitude of different, many other things, but to me, that's always one of the biggest ones I always see it as. We're now going to feature a song from Renai Morceau. Since the early 80s, Renai has created art. She works individually and collectively on indigenous stories with specific cultural practices that shapes the music, live productions, and video creations she has made. This is Healing Song, a song Renai had the honor of singing with the late Shirley James. And this song, Shirley describes as a song for those that have experienced residential school, as she has.
so when we look at September 30th, so it's Truth and Reconciliation Day. What do you feel is the most important for us to learn today? Okay. Uh, I, I like your questions because I find that you, you asked me to answer one. And I'm really like, there's always a multitude of things, but I would say, you know, what, why I feel is important to learn. Uh, I would say is being very mindful that intergenerational trauma is a very real thing and it continues. You know, you got you to think about a child um, ages three or four or whatever, and they're put in these schools for, you know, an average of 10 or 15 years, and they, you know, they chuck them along out when they're 16, I think. And it's a childhood of being told you're not good enough because, you know, your skin is dark or you're native. Stop speaking your language, stop practicing your culture, learn to be a good English speaking Christian. Basically, dehumanizing and hurting children like that on top of, physical and sexual abuse and emotional and cultural abuse, that hurts and traumatizes a child going into becoming a grown-up. And what happens with that is self-abuse, self-medication, it leads to addictions. It could lead to a life of crime. It, it could lead to suicides. It could lead to, it, it leads to a challenging, hard life. And those, and those people, those survivors that have children, and some, sadly, sometimes that abuse that they went through is passed on to those children, so on and so forth. You know, loss of language, which is a, a core identity of, of many people. It's known that a lot of these health problems that happen and socioeconomic problems, etc. It's not, it, it's like poverty state. It's not just a choice of something you want to do. It's you have been through something. And it can pass on from generation to generation. The last Indian residential school closed in, I think it was Saskatchewan in 1997. Uh, the, the only, the major residential school that closed in the Atlantic, Atlantic here in Shibanakati, that closed in 1967. Uh, Indian day schools have closed much sooner. My school that I went to was the third last to close in the Atlantic. Uh, the last school in the, the last Indian day school to close in the country uh, was, in, uh, I believe it was Kanasawaki in Quebec which, uh, in two, September 2000. I believe that is at the site or near the site of uh, where the Oka standoff was. I'll have to double check my history on that. And so be mindful of that's only three, four years between the last residential school and the last Indian day school closing. Those students... Uh, I, I can't think of the math off the top of my head, but that's roughly 20 to 25 years ago. Um, they would be old enough to be parents now. And then with the abuse they went through, that's another generation of children who will be growing up being passed on the pain that their parents and grandparents, etc., went through as well. So it's, it's so going back to the question, why it's important to learn about this is we're trying to undo the damage address the damage you want to promote and facilitate healing for how hurt and abused the children at these schools were but you also want to help take that away the pain of it and it's also at the same time you want folks to remember what happened in canada people ask sometimes people ask me am i proud to be canadian it sometimes shocks them when i say yes i am but 
uh, I also tell them, I love Canada so much. I do want to make it better. I love Canada so much. And that's why I will take every opportunity to criticize it. And I do that out of love. I don't do that out of hate or anger. If I hate or if I hate something, if I'm angry or something, I don't say anything and I walk away. And I think that the no response hurts even more. And I like to think the no response, I like to think it hurts Canada when you're not hearing from someone praising you. I, I want to take the opportunity and say, Canada, you got to smarten up. You got to address infrastructure in communities. You got to promote uh, truth and reconciliation. Don't just talk about the, the calls to action. You have to act on them and continue to promote and support them. And when you do that, then you can show off to the world that not only are we you know, champions of human rights on the international scene, but we treat the, the original indigenous people with the utmost of respect as well, because we're acting on truth and reconciliation commissions, call to action, the world commission on Aboriginal people's recommendations, numerous royal commissions and inquiries into many, many things. To me, I want to say Canada can be better. And I want to be a part of that as well. I, I tell people I very well know Canada's negative history, but if you try to, you know, whitewash it or brush it on the rug, uh, you don't deal with infections and you know disease like that. You take it on, you face it, you cure it, address it, and prevent it from ever getting worse again, or prevent it from you know spreading something bad. When you tackle the hard questions about racism or anti-Semitism or xenophobia, etc. To me, that what makes Canada better and to live up to its international reputation that other people see us as. And I want to be a part of that. But, you know, there's a lot that Canada needs to learn and, you know, pulls bootstraps on. And I am here to help with that. I believe many people are. But at the same time, I, I will openly criticize when it does bad. I guess I also like to see it as, you know, a parent with a bad child. And I wrote about this in 2017. And I said that, that at the time, Canada was turning 150. I said, I, I hope the history of what happened. But, you know, Megamagi is at least 13,000 years old. Canada's turned 150. And I said, to me, Canada's a young child. It's like a teenager. You love it. But it's being bad sometimes. And when you have a child, it's bad. You have a teenager, it's bad. You don't throw them out the house and tell them, go live on the street. You take the child, you explain to it why your behavior is bad, why it's wrong, and this is what you need to do to make it better. And indigenous nations are far older than Canada. So I like to see Canada see indigenous nations as the good parent that loves you and says to you, this is what you're doing, this is wrong. I'm not going to ostracize you or spank you or whatever. I'm going to teach you how to be better like that. I really like that in you know, the sense of, you know, we have to be better. And, and what are those steps towards being better? And you, you talked about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada. And there's a quote from it where it says, together Canadians must do more than just talk about reconciliation. We must learn how to practice reconciliation in our everyday lives within ourselves and our families and our communities, governments, places of worship, schools and workplaces. It's a call to action. And September 30th can't be just about one day. And then, you know, we wait another 365 days to talk about it and learn from it. So what can we do every single day? What's one step that we can take that's helping us move towards that change of betterment? 
for for me, it's I, I speak to my wife about this quite a bit, and so for added context, the month of October in Nova Scotia uh, is recognized as Mi'kmaq History Month here in, in Nova Scotia, um, and as you know, June throughout Canada is recognized as Indigenous Peoples History Month, and what I appreciate is uh, September thirtieth. I have been asked so far to be speaking to many audiences. So on the 29th, I, I'm speaking to, um, I think it's brownies. It's one of those girl guides things. I'm, it's young girls, like grade three, grade two. So their parents have asked <clears> if I would come to a, to a school or to a field, I can't remember, to, uh, to speak to them about, you know, Mi'kmaq culture. Earlier, that, earlier in the day, I'm actually going to be speaking to uh, a law firm about Mi'kmaq culture, and um, in October, I believe so far, I'm going to be speaking to um, a group of fitness friends about it. I'll be speaking to, um, I think it's not uh, Sparks I might be speaking to, and I think there's uh, one, of, one, of, one of the universities here in Halifax as well, and for me, uh, I'm glad they're, they're asking me about this, and a lot of it is because of September 30th, and, and that means a lot. And probably the advantage I want to say I have is October is also Mi'kmaq History Month, so I want to take that as an opportunity when and where and to the best of my ability to, you know, speak to organizations, speak to schools or uh, youth groups or any kind of group that wants to learn. And while I'm happy it is on for September 30th, it is on for October, uh, when my speaking engagement is done, and so like when September 30th is over or when about history month is over I, I don't want the history to stop it cannot stop we we, we learn about Indian residential schools and I always I will be speaking about the one that was here in the Atlantic you know likewise if you're in Banff or Calgary I encourage you to learn about Indian residential schools that uh, that affected people in around that respective territory here I, I can speak about the major one that was in uh, Shibanaki well my, my well my session is over and you know, when I shut the screen off or when I go home, I, I, I want those audience par uh, participants who are listening to me to say, you know what, I'm going to read the calls to action or I'm going to read. Uh, there was a before the TRC's final report came out, there was a book by El the late elder Isabel Knockwood. It was called Out of the Depth. And it was the first from my knowledge, major account, major book written about the Shubenacadie Indian Residential School. It came out decades before the TRC file report came out. I want to tell people here, you should read that book. If I'm talking to someone from, you know, Calgary, for example, or Banff, I would like to tell them, um, learn about the Indian Residential Schools that affected the people around your territory. So that would be Treaty 7, if I recall correctly. If you're in Toronto, learn about Indian residential schools that are near that area. Find authors who wrote about it or read about it up in the TRC. If you're in this territory, I would, you know, I would tell you read out of the depths or you know read things about the Shubenacadie uh, Indian residential school in this area. And of course, you want to learn more. I would then say and encourage learn about the schools elsewhere as you can. But it goes back to my answer that I stated earlier. Be mindful of whose territory that you are in. If 
this, if the if there was a if somebody was visiting here from elsewhere, uh, I would still say learn about the Shubenaki Indian Residential School. It'd be the same thing I would say if somebody was living in Halifax and they were going to move to uh, Vancouver, Coast Salash Territory. Uh, learn about the Indian residential schools that affected the coastal ash people while you are living in Vancouver, especially if you want to work with Indigenous people and you want to commit to doing your part for truth and reconciliation. That's so good. And thank you for all the literature and resources you shared. I, th- I think that's a great, great direction to follow and, and start out. And it's true. It's, you know, I, I think we need to kind of educate ourselves. We need to learn. We need to. Um, really understand the territories that we're currently in and 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 how our history affected that. So I want to switch over to uh, a fun fact about you. And, and you shared that you dreamt of being a professional wrestler. Uh, and like, I, I wanted to like to like what scope were you thinking? Were you kind of wanting to go like WWF at the time and now WWE or? Oh. You pretty much nailed it right on the head. Uh, I've loved wrestling since 1987. Uh, I saw a taped version of Saturday Night's Main Event. I was taped from somebody on the reserve had a satellite dish. So, like, we didn't get cable on the reserve till like, 1988. So, if you want to watch wrestling, you had to go to someone's house who had a satellite. And he recorded it, played it. I thought it was amazing. We got cable a year later. And I watched it so, so vigorously as a child. <laughs> and I think it was around 92, 93, maybe, that I started kind of getting ideas of, hey, I kind of would like to do this for a living. And so later on, I would like pick up Easy Run and pick up weightlifting and all that. And I used to pick up the old magazines of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, and I found a book for sale in it. And like this is way before the internet. So I had to send off a money order to the United States on a book on breaking into the wrestling business. I learned all this stuff, and then I bought the second book, which you know explained to you that wrestling was at work. It was kind of finding out. It was kind of like find out who Santa Claus was. You're kind of <laughs> sad, but at the same time, you feel mature for knowing. And that's what wrestling was when I learned it was at work. It broke my heart that it wasn't work, but at the same time, I was like, you know what? I feel like a cool grown up now. That I know how it worked, but. So that's how I got into fitness back in the 90s. But the reason I did not pursue the goal was I wore corrective lenses. At the time, I wore glasses. Now I wear contacts. And I wrote to four wrestling schools throughout North America. I got accepted to one in Shawsville, Virginia. And uh, so I was ready to look into going to school somewhere around Shawsville, Virginia, but go to the wrestling school on weekends to train because that's how they did the training. Uh, routine. And I found a phone number for Ron Hutchinson School of Wrestling in Toronto. And at the school, um, you know, they got a lot of famous alumni like Ed and Christian and the others. So I called and I was 17 at the time. And the guy answered. And I said, um, I started asking and said, listen, I'm, I'm from, I'm from, you know, a small reserve in Nova Scotia. Um, I think I was like 5'10 or 5'11 at the time. I was 170 pounds. I said, I want to be a light heavyweight and all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. And so I was asking what the rules were. He said, well, you move to Toronto. You got to find your own place, find your own job. We train weekends or whatever it was. And uh, they said, we won't let you in the door unless you're 18. I said, well, I'm going to finish high school first. I'll be 19 when I finish high school. So I said, all right, all right, kid, what else can you tell us? And so 
Then I got on the topic. I said, oh, by the way, I wear glasses. He goes, how weak are your eyes? I was like, I got pretty bad eyesight, sir. Sorry, I can't train you. Click. And I just died. So I couldn't wrestle because I wore glasses. Although, a bit of a sadder end into this, I guess you could say, I was reading Chris Jericho's third autobiography a couple of years ago. And about halfway through the book, he was talking about a match that he had. And he said, during the match, his contact lens got knocked out. And I stopped. And I said, whoa, you mean I could have wore contacts all these decades to be a wrestler? <laughs> and by then, I was in my mid-30s. I was like, ah, probably too late. But a part of me kind of wishes I could go back to like 1998, tell the 17-year-old Jarvis, just get contacts. Move to Toronto, become a wrestler, wrestle right itself. <laughs> So I, I don't watch it as much. I, I try to watch it a couple times a week. You know, I love WWE. I like watching WWE, but I love watching AEW. Uh, we still watch the pay-per-views. Uh, we went to the Royal Rumble last year, actually. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, it was actually it was freaky, though, when you think about it. We went to the Royal Rumble. It was January 2020 in Texas. Wow. You went, you went in Texas. Yeah, two months before COVID. And we heard the word COVID in the news, and we just thought, and at the time, I was like, oh, no, it's just going to be H1N1. It's only going to be bad for a month, if it, if it even makes it up this way. And then, you know, two months later, the pandemic starts. And uh tell my wife to think the last mass gathering we were at was in Texas in a stadium with 40,000 other people. Wow. That's, you know, and it's it's true. It's It's hindsight. And you think about, you know, when it started and when it first started to pop up in, in December and then like all these events that occurred leading up to March. It's, it's, it's pretty surreal to think about the gatherings and how many events with so many people happen. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think it's just a great story and, and, and good for you and how much you tried to pursue it. I mean, that, that's what we have to do when we're young. We have to kind of go after our dream and it's sad to hear that contacts was the only thing that was, keeping you away from it, but it's, it's, it, you know, you mentioned how you kind of learned about the reality of wrestling and, and the work. And, and now there's these great, I don't know if you had a chance to see any of these great biographies on, on A&E, like they did Macho Man Savage. Oh my gosh. The uh, Roddy Piper. And it's just, it's gut wrenching the, the lives that they led and the pain that they put their bodies through. And, and, th- and this is what makes me think is there was no way all those guys were 2020 vision. I think, I think you, you called the wrong school. I think so. <laughs> I, it, it may have been. I remember um, one story I read uh, was about a, a wrestling Stan Henson and you know, he was, he had a reputation for being a rugged tough guy. And you know, I remember, uh, I'm not sure if it was uh, Jim Cornette or I saw, I mean, I saw on Twitter, they said when he clotheslined you, he had to hit you with all your bite because he couldn't tell how far away you were. <laughs> and I was like, that's kind of freaky scary. But uh, yeah, it's funny. I, I, I talked to my wife about it. I said, in a weird way, I still would love to have done it, but maybe my health is probably better off having not done it because I'm mindful the injuries are real. People get hurt doing this. Some, you know, I think like the life longevity um, gets reduced from mm-hmm. it. And as you said, watching the biography, sadly, we learn a lot of them, you know, end up um, self-medicating to deal with the pain as well. Yeah. But, you know, there are happy stories out of it. But at the same time, there are a lot of sad stories as well that go with it. It's true. 
yeah it's you know and it's, it's i mean it's such a it's such a business such a world i mean when i when i learned that about you it was nostalgia for me because i mean I, I grew up on you know wrestlemania and and like getting caught up in the whole idea of like hulk versus andre the giant when they like turned on each other and then you know the macho yes. man came into the <laughs> fold and ultimate warrior and jake the snake versus hacksaw jim duggan animal eating the you know the the what is it the turnbuckles like like all those things yes, right? like it's, yeah and yeah. I, it's so yeah but it's, it was just a world to get caught up in so incredible well it, jarvis i cannot thank you enough for sitting down with me today and um sharing your knowledge and just really opening our minds to what is important about september 30th and and more important what we have to do beyond that one day and not letting it just be one day. And, and I really liked what you said in terms of this is our opportunity to really understand the territories that we're in. And, you know, after September 30th or after we hear you speak that that's not where we just close, you know, the computer and the screen down. It's like, we have a, a we have a responsibility to continue learning and, and work towards that change. So thank you. No problem. I appreciate the opportunity and as well as to uh, Dwayne for arranging all this. And I, uh, to finish on, no, I, I really do want to say I really do appreciate uh, this opportunity and as well as for Good Life, you know, taking a step up from this, taking this step up further to help and facilitate this. Because I remember, I do tell people this a lot outside my own Good Life circle that you remember in spring, summer of last year with, with the murder of uh, George Floyd and, you know, there, there are another wave of support for Black Lives Matter. And I know, and I remember at the time, a lot of companies were saying we support Black Lives Matter. And, you know, I, I'm, al I'm always appreciative of the, the corporate statement, but I'm like, I want to see the corporate push and support behind it. And mm -hmm. I remember uh, at the time, Good Life saying, we're going to create a position to have this as a regular, dedicated thing. And we're not going to ask someone in the company to volunteer their time to do it. We're going to create a job out of this to make sure this is a regular, ongoing thing. And I and I tell a lot of people, I, I commend Good Life for that. To saying we have we're going to have a regular person like this will be their job. And I, I I'm sure you know I've been speaking to Dwayne a lot since mm -hmm. uh, last year about this, and our conversations picked up especially more when we start uh, buying the, the locations of. Uh, children who attended Indian residential schools who, who died at the school. And as you know, it began, it began in Kamloops in, uh, back in uh, spring, 20, May, I think, of this year. And sadly, as you know, more and more bodies were, were being found everywhere. And, and Good Life wanted to push and promote and get behind, you know, what the TRC's calls to actions there and doing their part for reconciliation. So it's not just, you know, on calling on government. Because government is one that legalized all this, it's called on you know companies and people to you know do their part as well too. So I've really appreciated Good Life, uh, for lack of a better term, putting their money where their mouth is and stepping up to the plate. I really do commend that law, and I do tell that to other people. Jarvis, once again, thank you so much for being on the show, and again, I can't thank you enough for sharing what you shared today. My, my pleasure. Thank you so much, Tim. It's been great. 
Well, that's our show. Thank you once again to our guest, Jarvis Gugu, for being here today. Now, Jarvis shared a lot of great resources, which you can find the links for in the show notes, so please check them out. Also, a big thank you goes out to Dwayne Smith, our manager of diversity, equity, and inclusion, for helping set this episode up. A huge thank you to Renai Morso for sharing her music. We are going to end on one of Renai's songs. This song is called New Nation. This is a song she composed with late Matisse composer Fraser Lang. It is about the Matisse, wondering about that first meeting, that first moment between a Euro man and her indigenous women ancestors. Thank you for listening.
Delta 